Hello and welcome to season eight of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm still Danny Lobel. Still Danny Lobel after all these seasons. And thank you guys for being with the show. Thank you for staying with the show. Thanks for finding the show if you're new. I'm just happy you're here. Great show for you today. I'm very excited. Fred Armisen, one of my absolute favorite people working as a comedian, alive. Just the man's an artist. And it was really, really cool having him here. And I'm excited to share this with you. When somebody like this comes on the show, as much as I'm excited for myself, thinking, oh, cool that I get to do this, I'm always thinking, yes, I cannot wait for all of you to get to hear this. Even though I don't know all of you, or even some of you, maybe one or two of you, but there are so many of you, thank God, and I don't know you. But I feel like I know you through emails, through the iTunes comments, and just through sort of the interconnected energy of the podcast universe, or the actual universe. I'm just really happy to have this to share with you. I know that the intro I recorded on the special episode with Patrice O'Neill, some of you found quite depressing. And fair point. I was pretty depressed when I recorded it. Although, at the time, I felt like it was really optimistic, too. Because I'm not saying I'm giving up. I'm still fighting. But it's tough. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to downplay it. And I, I remember when I recorded this, I was like, should I put this out there? Am I even allowed to do that? And I was like, yeah, I wanted... I can, I can put whatever I want out there. I'm just... Why shouldn't I just be as open and honest with you guys as always? And that's what I want to do. I want to just give you the raw honesty. If it's good, if it's bad, if it's inspiring, if it's depressing, it's all part of it. And I'll also add in this, when I recorded that, it was right after my parents had stayed here uh, in L.A. with my wife and I for Passover. And when I listen back to it now, I feel like I hear a lot of their voice in what I said, a lot of their doubts which are just fears and worries for my sake, are echoed through me. And sometimes I have a hard time remembering where they end and where I begin. And I sort of absorb a lot of their fear and anxiety when they're here because they're seeing me from outside of me. And it's really hard to see yourself that objectively, especially through the eyes of your parent who... You know, they worry. They're they're concerned for me, which is nice, but not always in the healthiest way. But they mean well and that they're rooting for me and they're hoping for me to make it in this life. So that I feel needs to be expressed as well. Sometimes it's easy to sort of live within your own structure of confidence, your own structure of altered reality where you're like your own ego can sort of help you get through these times but when your ego is washed away uh, or broken for a little while you have no protective armor to get you through what rationally you I don't think most artists if they were completely rational would have ever become great artists there has to be some element of irrational thought and delusion to get you through the times of rejection. And uh, I do kind of lose that believing in myself when I'm looking at myself through the mirror of my parents, if that makes sense. I just thought it's worth sharing because maybe some people also can relate. 
Or maybe it would just give you a better understanding of where I was at when I recorded that. Not, by the way, to diminish anything I said. It was all 100% true and raw and honest, but the context is important too, I think. I do get into my insecurities and fears and worries with Fred Armisen. I think he had some great insight into it. And he himself came from a background where he worked for many years unrecognized as a musician. And we talk about that in the interview. Man, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. This is really one of the guys that I wanted to do the show with, and it got to happen. And I'm so excited. I hope I don't come off too much like a fan in the interview, but honestly, that's it. It's real. It's the real thing. I try to give you the real thing. It's not phony. It's my excitement is in there. I thought about cutting it out where I'm just sort of sounding like a fanboy or whatever. But it should be in there. It's all. Should, I feel it should all be documented. It should all be authentic and give you the experience of what it was for me in this point in my life to have Fred Armisen come over my house to record this with me. It was an astounding, surreal, crazy thing. And he got here, and I was waiting outside because I knew he was on his way. And I see him walking down the block because I guess he'd parked down the block, and he's wearing his sunglasses. I'm like, holy crap, that's Fred Armisen in my neighborhood. And I really remembered what it is to be a fan of somebody because I was like, Fred Armisen is going to see where I live, which for some reason is important to me. And he got here and I was excited to show him the chickens. And I might be, I might come off like a crazy person, but I mean, to people, I I don't think so in the interview, but I was like, Hey, you want to see my chickens? And he's like, ah, I was like, come on. I don't know if he was so excited to see him, but I took him there. And anyway, I was just like, I want to share my little world with you. I want you to know that I exist, this exists, because I love so much what you do. That was really important to me. And the fact that he did it, I am so grateful. And I don't know if he'll ever hear this, but if, if you do hear this, Fred, thank you again. I really, really, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate that you did this. Okay. We have two sponsors. The first one is the wonderful Dan Schlissel of Stand Up Records. Stand Up Records, where my new album will be coming out, The Nicest Boy in Barcelona, hopefully soon, recorded in Barcelona last year, and available hopefully soon for you to purchase. But in the meantime, they have my first album up there for sale, Some Kind of Comedian, as well as so many other great ones here. Take a listen for more info on that. You know, here at Stand Up Records, when we say we have the best names in comedy... We're not messing around. In fact, we were there first, with comedians who went on to become household names. Names like Hannibal Burris, Maria Bamford, the Sklar Brothers, Doug Stanhope, Mark Marin, and Lewis Black. So why not head on over to StandUpRecords.com or Amazon.com or the iTunes Music Store and pick up a classic CD, DVD, or download of the best comedians working today. And check out some of our other artists, because you never know who the next big thing will be. That's StandUpRecords.com. That's Stand Up Records, the brand you know, the brand you love. Go and pick up some comedy today. And we're also sponsored by a great company that sponsored us in the past, and I love them, and they do amazing, amazing stuff. And they are, of course, number one auto transport. Number one auto transport is a company if you need your car transported. And they will ship your car anywhere in the United States. Number one auto transport's drivers are fully insured and bonded. And they have live agents standing by to help you with all your car shipping needs. 
Mention this podcast, Modern Day Philosophers, and Number One Transport will give you $50 off your next car shipping rate. And they are really a top, top-notch company. If you're shipping your car, there's no reason to use anybody else. If you think you might be interested in shipping your car, grab a pen, because I'm now going to give you their phone number. Ready? Did you get the pen? Do you have it? Is it in your hand? The company's name is Number One Auto Transport, and that's the word number spelled N-U-M-B-E-R, and then the digit one. So N-U-M-B-E-R, the number one, as in the digit one, autotransport.com is the website, number one, autotransport.com. If you still have that pen, here's the phone number. If you don't still have it, pick it up again. How far could it be at this point? Call them at 855-422-4141. That's 855-422-4141. One more time, 855-422-4141. And for the last time, it's a number one auto transport spelled N-U-M-B-E-R, the digit one, autotransport.com at 855-422-4141. 855-422-4141. If you need your car shipped, there is nowhere better to use. And $50 off when you mention this podcast makes the deal that much sweeter. Go use them. Number1autotransport.com. A proud sponsor of this show. A proud show to have that sponsor. As you may know, I have mentioned that I'm going to do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland this summer. It's very expensive. It costs me about 10,000 bucks, well, more than that, but I'm asking, I'm trying to raise 10,000 bucks towards it. It's a crapshoot, but I'm hoping that it's going to maybe get me an agent, maybe get me some work overseas or even back here. So it's an investment and it's a huge risk I'm taking on myself, but you got to play the game to win it. So I'm trying. I have this terrific show that I wrote. I've been working. You might remember Maddie Goldberg from, I think, season two he was on. He's one of my best friends in the world and one of the funniest people I know, and he's directing the show, and he's been working with me. In fact, when I'm done recording this, I'm going over to his house to keep workshopping it, and I'm going to run it here at the Hollywood Fringe Festival, and then I'm taking it to the Edinburgh Festival in Scotland, and for the first time in my life, I'm making a GoFundMe page, and I'm hoping that I can raise some money towards it. If you're interested in helping out with that at all, I will be posting that up on my personal Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Lobel. And there'll be a link to it on the website, moderndayphilosophers.net, where you can also donate. Please write in and say hello, thecomical at yahoo.com. And if you want seasons one or two, they're available for sale on iTunes. And now, without any further ado, except for the intro song, I'm so excited to present you with one of the funniest people in the world who I got to interview right here in my house in L.A., the great Fred Armisen. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. I'm here with Fred Armisen. It's uh, great to have you here. 
and thanks for doing it. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, I thought I'd I'd start off by uh, talking about how this how this came to be because it's only happened once before that it, something like this happened. It was on a different show I did, but I, I once ran into Paul Giamatti on the street. Uh, do you remember the movie American Splendor? I don't think I do. Oh, it's a great movie. Uh-huh. You got to see it. Uh-huh. It's about Harvey Picar, who is a... Oh, yes, of course. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so... That's like such a well-made movie, and I, it was like kind of ahead of its time with that whole like actor with the actual person. Yeah. It was brilliant. It was like the coolest movie ever. Yeah. For me, that movie was life-changing. I re- like it really changed everything for me. Yeah. And, uh, and I became friends with Harvey Picar after the movie because... I mean, I, I write comic books, and I always wanted to do that. And when I saw that, it just inspired me, and it changed. It's a long story, but we became friends. And then I ran into Paul Giamatti while I was crossing the street once in Soho, and I said, hey, you know, there's this crazy story. And I told him, and I had a, a podcast in 2004, like way before anyone was doing them. I said, you want to come and do it? And he came in and did it. I, that was amazing. Oh, that's so cool. And, that's, and, that's pretty nice. And it's the same way that you're here, really, in a, in a way. I ran into you a few years ago on the Upper West Side. Yeah. And this is probably the longest I've ever... It's probably pre- a long time ago now. Yeah. Because I haven't been up on the Upper West Side in ages and ages. That's I used to live up there, but that's years ago. About three, I think three or four years ago. More than that. It would be four to, four to five. But I ran into you then, and then uh, we... I think you gave me an email address of somebody to reach out to or something. And, yeah. Uh, and then it didn't pan out. And then I ran into you again at the Century City Mall a few years later. Yeah, meant to be. And it was meant to be. And uh, and I'm so excited. I think this is the longest I've ever pursued somebody for an interview. Oh, that's not, I'll take it as a compliment. It's a huge compliment. And it's because I I, I really love your work. Thank I you. really, really love your work. So I, I appreciate so, it. Thanks. So excited to have you here. And, Thank uh, you. And yeah. And also, um, I think there's something about you that, that that I really like um, in terms of your, well, I know there is, but in terms of your personality. And I think it's something to do with this, the way you're very soft-spoken and, and you seem, everything you do seems friendly. Does that, wow. Does that, that, what a, it's a really nice thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, you know, I can't never, I can't tell what my voice is like. Mm-hmm. So to me, sometimes I think I'm being really emphatic. Sometimes to me, it sounds like I'm being really, percussive when I talk and then uh, when I actually hear it it is softer than I, than I imagine um, friendly you know it's it's not all the time but you're probably seeing a reflection of what your energy was like so because you approached me in a certain way then sure I was friendly but like if there are many times where, where if someone's being aggressive or drunk or something like that like then, I'm not as friendly. Oh, I didn't even mean in person, though. That's true, too. I meant, like, your characters that you portray. Oh, yeah. Friendly. I always try to do them kind of friendly just because I think the audience just reacts better to it. Like, it's just something that I just learned over the years that it's like, I think audiences kind of, if you're friendly, then they just return the, the, the feeling. Have, have there been characters that you've portrayed that were not friendly that you, you could say, oh, yeah, that didn't work out because of that? There have been a ton of characters that I did on SNL that might not have even made it to air because it didn't work. Um, But for the most part, as far as I can remember, 
most of them are just are friendly, even if they're dictators. Even if I did like Ahmadinejad or mm-hmm. some some dictator, I still try to. Uh, I, I think I did I do Gaddafi once. Just people like that. I still try to do it kind of somewhat jokey. Yeah. Well, or jokey meaning like friendly. Like I don't play up the the other parts of them. Are there still things you find that you're learning as you do characters? All the time. All the time. Give me an example. Um, One thing is that the the tone of what an an audience likes changes because we've seen so many characters over the years, just in general, that um, I think people start to evolve as well. Audiences start to evolve, which is a really good thing. So never can I lean on my past. Never can I lean on, hey, I'm good at doing this one thing. That has to keep changing because people, and it's a really good thing. Their ear changes, what they hear, what they see, the way we receive news, all those things like that keeps changing. So I actually feel like it's faster and faster. There's a bigger sense of, I think people in general are just going like, oh, I get it. So I do learn... Even doing Portlandia, when I have an idea, the director will say, no, the audience gets it. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm just like, oh, we could do, let's do it again. And they're like, no, the audience gets it. They're, so you can even see it in commercials and stuff. Things are, are people just receive information so fast that um, I would, it actually makes my job easier. I don't have to do as much. I don't have, it doesn't have to be sweaty. I could, Talk about something a little bit and then move on, and then it it, it usually works. Is there a, a a nuance that you've adjusted? I never know. I never know about nuance or anything, and I'm glad about it. I'm glad I never feel like I that I have such a command of it that I don't have to pay attention to what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I'm glad about that. I'm glad that like it's something I I really have to keep paying attention, keep even looking at people, looking at the audience, looking at if I'm doing stand-up or if I'm on set, just really reading the room. Because the danger is disconnecting and having so much overconfidence that you just think everything works. Mm -hmm. And then I think you could be in real trouble if you do that. What are some of the things you look for when you're reading a room? Um... If people lose interest. So you could tell when people are sort of, it's, you could just feel it if they ever start to tune out. Right, yeah. And then whenever that happens, it's not a moment to panic. I just go, well, I'm just going to change the subject. So um, it's as simple as that. Yeah. I remember early on as a stand-up, I used to get so mad at them. If they started losing interest, I would get mad at the crowd. I'd, I would want to keep pushing the same thing just to upset them. <laughs> I, I mean, there's fun in that, too. Yeah. Sometimes if I have, like, if I do feel like I just feel like making everyone suffer through something, but believe me, I can do that, too. <laughs> but um, I also feel like as, a, as an audience member, me, like when I go see things, I really want to go home. So I try and I don't like my time being wasted. I'm just like, let me just, let's get through this show and I want to go home. Mm-hmm. So I just try, I sometimes try to think of people like, People have lives. They want to, you know, be entertained and then go home. So I don't need to make this. I don't need to make this a prolonged right. <laughs> experience. 
Yeah. A, you know, there's a lot of comedians. There's a, just a, a lot of things people could be doing. So, mm-hmm. How long does it take you to develop a character to the point that you feel good about it? It's pretty fast because it's, it's my shortcut is that I don't go into something that I can't do. So it's, it's almost like I already have it in my head and I'm like, oh, I think I can do this type of person. But if the moment I have to start like digging and digging and overworking it, I don't do it. Then I'm like, that's just not for me. That's for somebody else. Uh-huh. If it's supposed to be somebody tough, for example, or like someone ultra angry, I know I can't do it. So I don't even bother. But sometimes I'll spot something or I'll notice something and I'll think, oh, this might be the type of person I can do. Yeah. I'm still learning about it. I know so many people say that, but I I really am. It is what I make a living doing. So to, to me, it's interesting. I found a real lucky place to be that I can get to have this life just from doing characters or impressions or whatever. And I, I didn't go to school for it. I certainly didn't spend that much time studying it. I wasn't a stand-up comedian for like decades and none of that stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. So you came at it from music, right? From music, yeah. Do you feel more of a, as a musician at this point or a, of a comedian? Comedian. I always feel like a comedian, but the musician is always alive and like I approach things like, you know, like I'm about to do like a music show, but then, um, but I'm mostly comedian. That's how I would say I make. Is there a musical rhythm, do you think, to your comedy? Yeah, I think it's like a up-tempo or mid-tempo new wave punk in somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, somewhere in like, I'd say that's the feel is like probably Talking Heads, somewhere in there, Talking Heads or like, Sometimes I, I strive to be like the police. <laughs> okay. But I think it ends cool. up being like talking heads. Um, all right. I'm going to go back to my, my digging around in the character yeah, stuff. Yeah. So when, you, when you, you mentioned you notice something about a person, you think, okay, maybe I could do that guy. Yeah. Do you think you're more attracted to vocal nuances or, or to physical? Vocal. You- more attracted to that. But I think what happens is as you start doing like a vocal part of some and the physical stuff just comes like, so the vocal is like the, the sort of the front part of the train. Mm-hmm. That's what pulls it. And then all of a sudden the rest of it just follows and you're doing the phase or the posture. But I'm, um, I don't remember it being about the physicality of stuff. I always find that the best impressionists are the hardest people to do an impression of. Oh, wow. Like, uh, I think you'd be hard to do an impression of. I think Mike Myers would be hard to do an impression of. Mike Myers, um, um, you, all you all you have to do is you have to remember that you, you have to remember this that he's Canadian. Yeah. So you you'd want to do his accent a little bit. He's got like a little bit of a Canadian accent, and then he's very respectful. Whenever he talks to other people, he's very respectful. He's a, almost official. Yeah. So just picture him sort of, it's a very Canadian, he's always, he respects everyone around him. Yeah. Um, uh, he, I feel like he's got a sort of, a sort of dignity. Um, so if you could just picture that, just someone who um, loves British music, just picture someone who loves British music and is very respectful, just maybe, <laughs> you know, do a little bow and then 
uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to do the accent, right. but he's got like a, a slight um, Canadian accent, and then, and then you're there. That's how you do Mike Myers. Yeah, well, why I was laughing also while you were doing that, and people can't see it, but just that your body movements did become very Mike Myers yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> as you were talking about. Oh, it. good, good. So, yeah, so, so you. Bill Hader did an impression of me, and it was really good. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, he's another one who I would say would be tough. You know what I mean when I say like if if I was to do Rodney Dangerfield, you know, yeah. it's, it's easy. You know, you know yeah, yeah, you yeah. kind of get it. Yeah, he's very he's a he's a character, you know himself. Yeah. Even even with what you said about Mike Myers, which I think is a great analysis, I wouldn't say he himself is such a character. He's more to me like a blank slate that does a great character. You yeah. know. I, I, I kind of get that impression from you, Bill Hader also, uh, and and I've thought of many others over time that are just not coming to me right now. But I think, um, well, sometimes you a good way in is you think about where they're from, right? So you think of Bill, and he's like from Tulsa, mm-hmm. and so he's got a little bit of a Tulsa accent. You can hear it once in a while, and then um, yeah, he's kind of he's kind of up here. Bill and he's like very thoughtful, like he's really a pensive person. Um, and you got to think of the shape of his face a little bit, you know, uh-huh. like he's just kind of so. But his impression of me was, I really enjoyed it. It was spooky. I love it because it's portraiture. I mean, you saw I, I paint portraits. And yeah, I, those, I, that was great. Yeah. For the, anyone listening, there's a, a painting right here in the living room. And it right away, I was like, oh, that's a great painting. And he explained to me that it's a jazz clarinetist. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I love portraiture. I love that. I feel like this show is portraiture. Like I, I, I almost, you know, my goal here is to get a portrait of you by the end of the show to give people. But I feel like you're also a portrait artist. That's, that's what you're doing. Yeah, you, maybe you're out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I talk to you a little about your childhood? Sure. I, I only know what it said on Wikipedia, so... Uh, so you grew up a lot in Valley Stream, is that right? Yeah, and uh, Long Island, and then um, Brazil for a couple of years. And my dad is um, uh, of Asian and, and German descent, and my mm-hmm. mom's Venezuelan. So you had a nice palate to work off. Of yeah, right there. And and I I, I uh, learned Spanish from my mom, and um, we moved around a little bit, and so why? My dad worked for IBM, uh-huh. so he we we got to learn some of the languages and stuff. And I have a younger sister and an older half brother uh-huh. in Germany. Um, Do you speak German? A little bit. Uh, can I get you to say something in German? Natürlich. Ich spiele Schlagzeug. Ich bin sehr glücklich heute. The reason is just because I, I, it's such an emphatic language. It's such a, a yeah. sharp sound, and, yeah. and and you have such a soft way of speaking to me. I, I wanted to hear how that sounds. But. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, although sometimes when Germans speak English, I think they're very soft-spoken. They have a sort of, yes, but you have to go over here to have the teacup. Yeah. Drink from the coffee cup. Um, <laughs> and so, but you have to, they have a sort of, you know, uh, like a tone of like, it's, it's, it's a little more quiet. I wonder if that's how they sound to each other in Germany. Like, but maybe it does. Who knows? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I grew up in, but in Long Island and... Went to School of Visual Arts in New York City, and I had—I feel like my childhood was great, you know. And um, I got to listen to a lot of music. I wasn't particularly good at sports. How old were you when you lived in Valley Stream? 
Mm. That was like kindergarten through, or maybe nursery school through like, first through like first grade, and then we moved to Brazil, and then back again from like fourth through junior high. I'm sorry, through high school, and then then I moved to this. So, so most of my childhood. Yeah, because I'm from Long Beach. We were on this just a few stops away. That's crazy. Yeah, because sometimes I had to take the Long Beach train. Yeah, that's the line. We yeah. got, I know we, we Valley Stream. And, yeah, yeah, Long Beach. Yeah. Ah, so you're a Long Islander. I'm a Long Islander. What are you doing in California? What are you doing in California? Ah, good question. <laughs> I guess we're doing the same thing. I love Los Angeles. Yeah, me too. I love it. I, you know, it took me quite a drive to get here today, mm-hmm. and I did not mind at all. Like, I just. I don't mind being in traffic. I don't mind because it's like you just listen to the radio, you know. It's, yeah, it's great. I never understand why people get so bent out of shape about traffic, but then they, they come home and they sit on the couch. Yeah, yeah. You're just <laughs> sitting anyway. It's you're just in a yeah. moving couch, which yeah. is much cooler than a stationary couch. Yeah, it's just it's air conditioned, got nice music. Hi, little turtle. Is that a tortoise or a turtle? It's a tortoise. Hi, tortoise. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's that's that was my childhood. I feel like it was pretty good. So do you feel like a Long Islander? Is that is that how you'd identify? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, definitely because um, I know when I meet city people from New York City, they have there's like a real I am from New York City, and I uh-huh. grew up on this street, and like there's a real like. I don't want to say pride, but there's like a real um, sensibility that I would say like, oh, as a matter of fact, this feeling that I have is that, yeah, that's what it's like being from Long Island. I spent most of my childhood in Long Island. We moved there when I was just about six from Queens, from Flushing, Queens. And I still feel like a Queens person. I moved from Queens too. Oh, really? Yeah. That's bizarre. Bayside. Oh, wow. Okay. Must have, must have been a common... <laughs> the Queens, Long Island move. Yeah, yeah, sort of... Uh, so did you move uh, at a very young age, I guess, from Queens then? Oh, yeah, from, before from I can Queens, re- barely, well, I could barely remember it. Like, yeah. I was a, must have been four or something. Um, but yeah, I think Long Island is like that feeling of like that distance from New York City, even though we, we both got to enjoy the city and go to yeah. like, music stores and stuff there. Like, I guess really it's Long Island that I'm from. It's funny, I, I have this, uh, I just got a new radio system put in my car. I want to brag, but... Uh, mm-hmm. but You're uh, too late. You already <laughs> bragged. I got a, it got three months of free satellite radio. So it's like opened up this whole world that I, you know, this has all been going on for a long time, satellite oh, yeah. radio. But it, do you oh, have it? Hell yes. It's amazing. It's fantastic. <laughs> you listen to XMU or like the first wave, the new wave station or... or um, of the bridge, the '70s sort of soft rock station. It's great. Or then I'd go up to the Howard Stern show on on 100. And but lately, I've just been. Sometimes I just I'll go to like the Comedy Channel. I'm like, what's going on here with these stand-up comedians? That's pretty great. So I was there today. I went to Laugh USA. Yeah. And uh, shortly before you got here, I was driving around and Jim Brewer came on. Mm-hmm. And he starts talking about, like, I'm a Long Island guy. Yeah. And that started getting me thinking, oh, I'm a Long Island guy, I guess. And you're a Long Island guy. Yeah. And then he was, he was killing. But none of the stuff he said would be stuff that would occur to me that it's funny. Mm-hmm. But it was just, it just sort of, I guess he must have been playing to a Long Island crowd when he was recording this. But he's like, then you get on the Long Island Railroad, you know? Yeah. 
and everybody and he goes and then it's like oh you're gonna go you don't call it manhattan you call it the city it's true yeah but to me this is all like yeah of course you know yeah, yeah. sometimes i find like i'm always surprised like oh that was material I had that in my head. I didn't know that was material. So you could have gone out on stage. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, comedians make it look really easy. And Jim Brewer makes it look easy. But yeah. there's a real skill to it. And there's a lot of experience that goes with it. Like, he knows what's going to resonate with the audience. Oh, so, sure. Yeah. Not that I need to tell you no, that. No, no, no. I'm no, just I, saying, but that's like the magic of it is like, it's just like any art form where you're like, oh, it's, I could do that. That was in my head. And it's like, well, he, but he makes it. It's a good feeling to make you feel that way. Yeah, it's but it, but it, I think the, the the thing is it's like sometimes something is material for someone. It's not material for like, and I enjoyed it when he was doing it. I, I thought it was great, but it but what he was saying to me would never look. I think when you go through the world, mm-hmm. there are little things that you see, you know, through your comedic lens that are material. Uh huh. I once had an idea for an app that um, wherever you go and you see something funny, you could post a little like floating thing that you think this is funny. So whenever someone else gets there, it would pop up on their phone and be like, oh, there's a funny thing here, you know? That's, that sounds good. I wonder, I mean, the closest you can come to that is like Instagram is similar in that you, except I don't know if you could find the location as easily, but like right. that's like a snapshot of what it is. On the other hand, but I don't want to dissuade you. I mean, that sounds like a good idea. I wonder what you'd call it. Funny thing? I don't know. Here's something funny I saw. <laughs> but I just feel like there's so much material. Everything is material, but yeah. to some people it is and to some people it isn't. Yeah. And it's it's interesting what looks like material to you and what, you know, somebody else with a funny mind can see and and it wouldn't be material to them at all. Yeah. But the, I like hearing other people's observations of things. I even like it if something's not funny. Like if someone points something out that's funny to them and not to me, I'm good with that too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Then it's like, oh, there's a whole other dimension of funny out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And it, it is like um, once in a while that happens where I'm like, that's not my sense of humor, but I'm glad I heard this. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like when somebody tells a joke with real, you know, really puts themselves into the joke, whether it's a good joke or it's not a good joke. Yeah. But if they really try to sell the joke and give the joke that respect. I couldn't agree more. It's great. When yeah. people put that much energy into it, it's when people get really physical on stage, it's because I, I can't do that. So when I see it, it's great. Like, oh, that person is really committed to doing this. You can't get very physical on stage? It's just not me. Mm-hmm. You know. But what if you're in character? Even my characters kind of stand still. Huh. I mean, some of the music ones move around a little bit, but I don't think any of my characters like really jump around or anything. You're talking about like a Jim Carrey type of physicality, or? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I feel like I've seen other comedians just really sweat it out and like run around on stage. And uh-huh. It's just I'm unable to do that. You know. Yeah, I don't do it either. But I always yeah. feel it's because of my my body. I feel like if I there's there's I, a, I think it's just an internal motor like either you that's how you want to be or you just you're more comfortable standing still mm-hmm. you know but when i see people knocking themselves out to entertain me i say great yeah i love it i love the effort i love the conviction i do too it makes me my job as an audience member easy too i'm like great i'll just sit here and <laughs> you could go crazy 
Dude. You know? Same thing with impressions. When people do impression after impression, I'm like, fantastic. I'll just disappear into it and just listen to it, you know? Yeah. Who who were the you mentioned when you were a kid there were comedians that you loved. Who were they? Mm, I always loved SNL. And I always loved Monty Python and Benny Hill. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's even, no matter how cool it sounds to say that you like Monty Python, I can't help it. I really did like those guys a lot. Um, And then as I got into high school, SCTV was like what me and my friends loved. We loved John Candy and Rick Moranis. I mean, we were so, I mean, all of them. We were really into that show and... I never stopped watching SNL. SNL was always my favorite. Me and my friends liked Jerky Boys. Remember them? Yeah. Then I remember I went through, I really liked Martin Lawrence. I still really admire him as a comedian because, like, he's one of those people who really gives it everything. Yeah. I don't know when it's going to happen, when people are going to, like, talk about his show again because it's like he had characters on it. He really was a real force of nature or is. Yeah. Um... I just haven't seen his show in a while, but it was great. And yeah, um, in Living Color, it was fantastic. Kids in the Hall. So, but that's moving into the future. But when I was growing up, I would say SNL was definitely worked for me. When did you start doing music? Um, I started playing drums when I was in ten or something, uh-huh. and then guitar. I took guitar lessons around then. Maybe I was eleven, but I ever since then I've just it's been. It's part of my everyday life. I love it. Was your ambition to, to like be a rock star? Yeah. yeah, that was my original ambition. Although the people I admired were people who did a hybrid of sort of visual entertainment and music, mm-hmm. like David Byrne and, and Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. I still, like the fact that they were so visual, and I have, I have to say David Bowie too. It's so cool to say David Bowie nowadays because he's dead. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, I hate saying it, but I really, the way he would change characters from album to album, I was way into that. So I always wanted to be that. And I knew I wanted to be famous. I was like, I got to get there somehow. And I thought it would be through playing the drums. And I guess really it was. But it sort of made a right and then a left turn and then a right turn. And then all of a sudden I was doing comedy. Do you know why you wanted to be famous? Because it was like, I was so moved by famous people and art and good music. I was uh-huh. so moved by Paul McCartney and, and The Clash and The Sex Pistols and The Damned. I was so moved by these musicians mm-hmm. that I actually feel like it's a utopian thing to like pass it on. Like they did that for me. They made my life worth living. I cared so much about these bands that, and these comedians too, that it seems natural to me to take that and just pass it along and like, okay, I'll take this on. I'll make things and make comedy and music and hopefully it can, we can just keep moving. Yeah. And and then when I'm 80 or whatever, someone else can do it. And then like, I think that's like our job. Like it made so much sense to me to see David Byrne and then to, to want to do the same thing. I feel like art, one of the great purposes of art is for is for kids to get through childhood, like without a doubt, yeah. or, or teenagers too. Yeah, like the t- teenage years are the are the rough ones. The, so that's where you need all that inspiration, and and that is definitely I, I don't know why. Like it seemed it made sense to me because it's it's less about I am great. Mm-hmm. I want to be great. 
it's not that. It's that like the tradition of making great art. I just feel like let's all make let's th this group of people let's make great things. Yeah. Which is another reason that like I when I see the success of other people, my contemporaries, I have an immediate feeling of opposite Schadenfreude, where I am always happy for them because I'm like we all have to do this thing. Yeah. We all let's make great art so that this generation of people are going to look at, at us and say, "Oh, do you remember that time?" Yeah. Just like we look at the 60s when there was the Who and the Beatles and the Kinks, the Rolling Stones. I want our group of comedians, I want them to look at us that way. Mm -hmm. And I want people to say, oh, do you remember when there was Key and Peele and Portlandia and Amy Schumer? And do you remember that? That time, uh, Tim and Eric? That's, I've, I'm in love with that idea of being part of that scene. Yeah, I was thinking about sort of like that recently, but just about how I used to think it was all about then. And I, I'd be so into like everything that happened then. Yeah. And now my shift has been about now. Yeah. It's it's all about now. It's not about then anymore. Now it's about now. Yeah. And I don't know when that happened for me, but I used to be so so into the then. Yeah. You know? It's nice. It's a good we're fortunate not to be stuck in thinking about it yeah. on those terms. And I just now as we're taping this, you know, this the big movie right now is that Jordan Peele one. Mm -hmm. And nothing makes me happier than like I I have nothing to do with that movie. And I still feel like it's my group. I'm like, we, we're doing it. We're like bending the idea of who makes horror movies and who's in front of the camera and behind the camera. I, I love it. I, I, it's, it's all of our jobs to do that, to like really yeah. show every other generation that like this was the coolest yeah. for comedy. I love that. I love, I love that attitude, I think. Yeah, it keeps, keeps me going. And it makes me, I get to enjoy other people's things. Yeah, you know, I enjoy other people's things. I love, yeah. I love everybody's things. I, I caught up. I got caught up. Now it's a long time ago, but like maybe um, seven, eight years ago, I caught up. I found myself getting jealous, getting bitter. I saw friends of mine just shooting way past me, and, and it's I, shooting past you in what regard? Well, in terms of what they were, career, income, uh, notor notoriety, and uh, you know all that stuff, and I and I'd still be grinding and mm -hmm. and uh, you know that guy had come up to me a few months earlier and said I love your stuff and the next thing I know I'd run into him at a comedy club and he'd be you know he'd have mm -hmm. this attitude like he was too good for me or something mm -hmm. and it started to really get to me and I caught it and I was like I gotta shut this down right now I can't I can't be I can't go down that path like and and I, I remember making a conscious decision I'm not jealous of anybody I'm not angry at anybody I'm just gonna keep making stuff and that's it. That's, well, you're a very healthy person then. I mean, if you're able to do that, um, that's great. What can, I mean, that you're honest with yourself that much that you knew that you were in those places. Whenever I do feel anything like envy, I try to say it out loud. And then if I say it out loud, then it turns out to be a positive thing. So I'll go, oh, I'm so jealous that they got to shoot this movie in England. And then it's a happy thing. I'm like, oh, someday I'll do it. But like, yeah. how cool. They shot this movie in England. Who I don't, I'm, this is a fictional right, thing right, in my right, head. Right. But it's always something like that. Some, some, whenever people travel to do a movie, I'm like, ah, oh, that's so cool. You can, I think, by the way, I think you have a perfect attitude. I'm just adding to it. Like if yeah. you ever feel a tinge of it, you go, oh man, someday 
hopefully I can get to do the same thing. Or like, you know, if, I, I like telling the actual people. Yeah. I feel like Andy Samberg is someone I do that with, where I just tell him openly. I'm like, like I'm so jealous. That is great. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you get to be on this big fancy channel and like, <laughs> you know, and it becomes healthy if you say to them, oh man, I am so jealous. And I, I mean it yeah. in a, like lucky you, but in, in a fun way. Being in the other place was mentally so tough for me. I hated it. I hated who I felt I was. Well, you're was. just hurting yourself. Yeah. 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 It was it was awful. Yeah. So. That's a a dark, that's like a bitter thing that e- eats away at people. At people, by the way, just so you don't feel alone, I've met people of all levels who have that. Yeah. You could be super successful and still have a chip on your shoulder about it. You could see it in interviews. You'll see it once in a while with some... Someone will make some comment that you're like, why are you still hung up on that? Yeah. Why? But that's their own personal lives. That's their own right. personal problems. In a way, it's none of my business. Yeah, but, but I mean, you see, when I was starting out, I remember there was this comedian who's no longer even a comedian, but uh, I remember I discovered, I loved Jim Carrey when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. To me, he was like, uh, he's still the great. Come on, you know, he's, he's, he's for the ages. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll sidetrack for one second from what I'm saying. I was trying to figure out today, I told my wife when you're on the way over here, I'm like, I'm so excited that Fred is coming. And, and I love doing this. And I love talking to everybody who I talk to on this show. But I'm like, why, am I, why do I feel more excited in this case than I normally feel? Mm-hmm. And, and this is what occurred to me. I think most of the people who I'm really, really like a fan of, mm-hmm. like I said, I became a fan when I was a kid. And I think you're one of the few people oh, that's that, so nice. that got me in adulthood, like where I'm like, oh, I have that same feeling. Like when I watched Jim Carrey, like when I see you on Portlandia, Jeez, when I see you on SNL, like, and when you first were on SNL, I, and this is like, this is, this is my thing that I feel like, you know, sometimes you discover a band before everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I remember saying, that guy's fantastic before everybody was saying oh, you were fantastic. Jeez, thanks, man. So I, I was like right there at the beginning, I was like, so I'm really excited to have you here. That, Thanks. That needed to, I needed to say that. I needed to have my fanboy moment. I, here, I appreciate but, it. But but back to Jim Carrey, like I didn't know about stand-up when I was a kid. I grew up, we didn't have cable. Um, for years, we didn't have a TV until I finally, like my parents had one in their room, but I finally got a black and white with rabbit ears that I put in my room. But um, all the comedy that I got was from movies. So all the comedians, I didn't know they were really comedians. I just thought they were there were regular actors, and then they were funny actors. Yeah, I had no concept of. I grew up in a um, very uh, religious Jewish uh, family, community, school. So my exposure to all this stuff, I, I didn't have all this outside exposure. So Jim Carrey was like this really funny actor to me, mm-hmm. and I was like, I love Jim Carrey. Then when I was um, like 16 years old, I started doing stand-up um, because I saw my grandma taped on a VHS um, Seinfeld and I watched in the little clips where he does stand-up. I thought it was a brand new thing. I was like, oh, a new art form, you know? Yeah. So I, started, I mean, in a way it was. Yeah. I mean, to you. But I didn't know about Carlin or Pryor or any of that. Yeah. I just thought, oh, Jerry Seinfeld started something. I'm going to try and do that too. Yeah. And then... You know, fast forward a few years later, I'm doing comedy in in uh, in in Manhattan, and I'm at the New York Comedy Club where they had these paintings 
of different comedians on the wall. They had Andrew Dice Clay, yeah. who I thought was Elvis for a long time. Yeah. And then uh, and Jim Carrey uh, was painted in, in his Ace Ventura getup. Yeah. One day I'm hanging outside the club with these comics, and they were all so bitter and angry. And I was like, it's it's so cool that there's like Jim Carrey is on the wall here. You think he ever did stand up? And these guys are like, you fucking idiot. He started in stand up. What's wrong with you, Lobel? And they, they were just so mean. But I was just like, I was so, ex- I was like, so, ex- I like, he did stand up, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> but it's a fair thing for you not to have known. This is like pre internet. It's not like, right. oh, you know, how are you supposed to know? Yeah, they were just mean. But the whole reason I got into it is they were all so bitter, these guys. And then they're like, and he sucked. And I'm like, I don't think he sucked. Like, I, I didn't, had never seen him do stand up. They're like, he sucked. He really sucked. And I'm like, well, who do you like, you know? And, and I'm like, what do, you th- what do you think of Chris Rock? And they're like, he sucks. And everyone's like, Chris Rock sucks. I'm like, Chris Rock sucks? I love Chris Rock. And all these people who I liked, I'm like, what about Eddie Murphy? What do you think? Of- Eddie Murphy sucks, you know? I was like, oh, man, these guys are so bitter. And they just can't even enjoy the, like, the whole, the whole point of, of, of all this is that this stuff is out there, and you can love it, and you can enjoy it, and it can yeah. inspire you, you know? And they lost all that because they got too bitter and they'd been doing it for too long and, and got nowhere and got sucked into that bitterness. Yeah. So like that's when that's when it they kind of saved me in a way because when I started feeling myself becoming like them, I was like, I can't be like them. I can't be the next generation of that. Yeah. You know? That's a bad place to be, definitely. Yeah. Because they end up just making themselves feel bad. That's it. They just bring themselves down unnecessarily. And what's funny about that is that like, had Jim Carrey walked onto the sidewalk right then, they would change their tune. Yeah, of They're course. Like, oh my God, I'm such a big fan. I had no idea. You know, <laughs> they would, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Bitterness, it's really so, it really hurts oneself more than anybody. It's just terrible. It's, it's like, you know, when you ever hear people say, I'm not a people person? Yeah. Is it, what do you think of that? I think it's fake. Yeah. It's like, we all have anxieties. We all have, you know, but like, to say that is like, well, then why, what are you doing in a city? Well, yeah. You know, like the only people <laughs> who can really say that are people who are really away in a cabin. Yeah. But the people who say that are in, I'm like, you moved to a city. You can't say that you're not a people person. When, when I drive around LA, I'm thinking every person is a people person. People are what drive people. Like if you see all the billboards, it's just us like looking at other people and being like, oh, that's a cool person. I like that person. We need it. Yeah, we yeah. need it all the time. We're drawn to it. We're, we all start walking towards whatever crowd that is. We all, we all do it. Yeah. You know. And then the, the other thing that I thought was weird when I was looking at those billboards, I was like, oh, everybody's a people person. Of course everyone's a people person. Yeah. We celebrate people. That's, that's what it's all about. And then I was like, you know what's kind of weird is is all like the the agents and the managers, how they act like, you know, to me they act like they're you know they're like you know too yeah. good for it all and everything, uh-huh. but really they're just like huge people people you know they, they're businesses people yeah they're in human trafficking yeah they're selling people <laughs> to other people and yeah everyone's kind of a a people person in that way even like I suppose. You know, as much as you can order stuff to be brought to your house, we still all go to the store anyway. Like, stores did not go, not all of them. Like, they still are in business. People like going and being around other people. Same thing with movies. Yeah. No matter how much people are streaming or whatever, everyone still goes to the movies. Yeah. To be around other people. Yeah, and then you have that fear when you go to the movies. Like, what if one of these other people shoots all the people? Oh, that, yes. <laughs> 
Then you get to be on the news. But that's like the worst thing is like when a person, that's why we're so hurt by it. Like, why would a person turn on a person? It's pretty, it's pretty astounding. It's always right after those things happen that I get the most scared. Like when I'm in a concert, it's after things, events like that, where I'm like, oh, what's the escape route? Mm -hmm. There's the exit, there's the exit. But then once it's a couple months have passed, you forget about it. Yeah. But it is a fear. I went uh, to Japan recently and everyone said, you got to go to this place called the Robot Cafe. And I just pictured robots coming out and serving you food, <laughs> which was, it was not at all. It's a, you go underground kind of in this sort of cafe, restaurant <clears throat> and there's an per, indoor parade of sort of, I don't know, dragon robots or something. Not good. And I had a, I had a real fear of like, what if something horrible happens? What is the way out? I don't know why I brought that up. But yeah, I'm just saying no. there are some crowded things where you could you feel like if something if terrorism happened or some kind of a disaster, it's just so easy for people to die. It happens all the time. Yeah. I have these fears too. Like sometimes I, I go to the movies with my wife and we see what we get there, we're like, what do we want to see? And I think I have this thought, like, let's go see like the worst thing. Whatever looks terrible, because they're not gonna attack that. You know? Right. It has to be a big event. I think it's usually when it's like those huge, crazy yeah. movies. Uh, re- really awful. Yeah. I think about it sometimes when there was a guy who was on 60 Minutes who died in Manhattan a couple of years ago in a car accident. He was in a car service. And it's just somewhere in one of the Manhattan highways he died. I It's moments like that that I'm like, it's where you least expect it. I'm like, getting in a car is is dangerous. I'm like somewhere in there is like the mm. danger zone, I think. Yeah. It's yeah. less terrorist related, but it's still like way beyond your control. Also uh, drunk drivers and stuff. It's just like, you know. My friend's mom had a stroke this week and he went back to where he lives to be with her. And that got me really scared. Like, cause a stroke is like, there's like, it's not even coming from outside. It's like there's a there's like a murderer planted inside you In that can head. strike at any time. Yeah. <laughs> How about it? Yeah. You could be as healthy as you want, and then sometimes your brain will shut down. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, there really is. I mean, I guess the good the good news is you have no little or no control over these things. Mm-hmm. You know, as healthy as you want to be or whatever. So you know, anything can happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Well, I feel like uh, this is probably a good time to get into our philosopher. All right, let's do it. To my left, I have um, sheets of paper turned over. I right. have not looked at this. I, in fact, am so unfamiliar with how this works that I don't, I don't know how this works. So you right. want me to turn it over? Well, you can just pass them to me. I'll, uh, I'll I'm going to pass it to you. Yeah. Why is it a stack of papers? Um, oh, well, there's different uh, pieces to it. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I'm going to stack the whole thing over. <laughs> I glanced at it, but I did not. I don't. I did not see the right. The, the the real answer is I just couldn't fit it all on one page. Oh, okay, okay, that's fair. <laughs> um, okay, so we have a guy. Uh, we being me, I have a guy who works on this show, and his name is uh, Alex Fasella, and he's really funny. He's a comedian and a comedy writer in New York, and he was a philosophy major. So when I started the show, I put out a feeler to friends of mine to see if anybody could find philosophers that might be able to match to the comedian who I'm talking about for us to study. Oh, good idea. So, um, so, he, so he sends me the mission, and uh, he chose for you Marshall McLuhan. Have you heard of Marshall McLuhan? 
You know, don't feel bad if you haven't. I haven't. I, I don't. I don't know most of these people until I read it. What he sends me. No, I guess I, I guess I haven't heard of him. Well, he says um, the connection is that uh, you have a show documentary now, mm-hmm. which is great, by the way. Thank you. Uh, so he picked a philosopher who talks about media. Uh huh. And uh, he says Marshall McLuhan. Well, here, let me read to you a little bit about. Marshall McLuhan first, so we could get to know who he was. Oh, his first, he had a first name, too. His, his full name is Herbert Marshall McLuhan, and he lived from July 21st, 1911 to December 31st, 1980. Mm-hmm. Wow, he was killed, like, or he was killed, he died, like, right after Lenin was killed, the same month. I don't know, just whenever I see December of 1980. I, I do the same thing. Yeah. But, uh... W- uh, how did he, I mean, he seems, sounds like he lived a pretty long life. How, yeah. He was a Canadian professor, philosopher, and public intellectual. Public intellectual. I never heard of that. It's better than like a private intellectual. I want to be a public intellectual. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Guess what I know? <laughs> His work is viewed as one of the cornerstones of the study of media theory, as well as having practical applications in the advertising and television industries. He was educated at the University of Manitoba and the University of Cambridge. Uh, He began his teaching career as a professor of English at several universities in the U.S. and Canada before moving to the University of Toronto, where he remained for the rest of his life. Uh, Mm -hmm. McLuhan is known for coining the expression, the medium is the message. Uh I never heard of that. Did you? I don't think... It's almost... When people are presented this way... Yeah. You, your brain goes, oh, yeah, I guess I have heard that, but I, I don't know that I've heard that. <laughs> you almost lie to yourself. Yeah. You know more than you do. It's catchy anyway. It's, it's catchy. And good yeah. good of alliteration. Of course. Of course. The media is the message. <laughs> okay. The expression, the medium is the message, and the term global village for predicting the world wide web almost 30 f- years before it was invented. I wonder how he predicted it. I, um. Yeah, I don't that's know. A, that's an odd thing to have in To there. claim. Yeah. I predict there's going to be a world wide web. Yeah, I could predict <laughs> that everyone's going to be able to log on to something. <laughs> it's, it's, too, it's too easy in retrospect to uh, <laughs> assume that's what he meant. Because he could have meant anything. Yeah. Or if he just looked at people and said, um, yeah. uh, owlize5157 at Gmail. Yeah. And they go, what's that? You'll see. You'll see. <laughs> It's going to be... That's you. Yeah. <laughs> I know. We should just make a lot of blanket statements now. And yeah. then people will see, see us as, as prescient. Yeah. You know. <laughs> he was a fixture in the media discourse of the late 1960s, though his influence began to wane in the early 70s. In the years after his death, he continued to be a controversial figure in academic circles. With the arrival of the internet, however, interest has renewed in his work and perspective. That's great. Wow. So maybe his work was terrible, but he had one good, you know, prediction, and then everybody's like, wait a minute, if he was right about the internet, right. maybe he was right about everything. I think if you stick to one theme yeah. and just keep it going, eventually people will come <laughs> around to it yeah. and just keep, keep saying Mexican sombrero, Mexican sombrero, Mexican sombrero, and then... 50 years down, they're like, hey, he was right about those sombreros. Yeah. I'm just saying that because I'm seeing one on the wall over there. Yeah. Um, all right. I have more on him if we want to look into it later, but I, I'll, I'll go back to uh, what Alex sent me here. 
um, which is a, a little summary of his work. I know, because we're really belittling him. And maybe there's something great about him. I mean, maybe, you know, it's easy for us to say, oh, who, even though we're just joking around, like, I, I'm sure that at the time he really was as great as they claim he is. Yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, I'm always amazed by all these people because just how much they put out, just yeah. so much. And you think about like all the people who leave the world and, and leave nothing for us to look at. Yes. Like I'm always like astounded by people who leave a lot. You know? Yeah. It's same here. Yeah. Uh, I'm always thankful to them. I'm like, thanks for doing that. Yeah. Because other people are like, I'm leaving you no clues. I'm yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah. But some people are like, I'm, I'm, make, I'm going to make albums. Yeah. And even if they're not good, it's just like, wow, they yeah. did so much. They really, all, it was for us. Yeah. It made for us. I'm still sad about John Lennon dying. Yeah. Well, he died before I was born, but I'm still sad about it too. Yeah. Um, were, you, you were around. Do you remember it? Yeah, I was in junior high school. Oh, my God. I was devastated. So sad. I mean, I'm still sad about it. Because um, the other thing is that, like, seeing crazy fans, I remember coming out of SNL, when you leave the studio, there's these fans down there. And they're nice enough people, but there's some strange strangers as well. And it's just like, all of a sudden, I can sort of see how that kind of thing can happen. Like, there are just people who you know, are mentally ill and who really think of themselves as want as invisible and wanting to make be be part of something bigger. And it's um yeah, I it's just it's so dumb. I'm like I'm so mad, like, oh this is a stupid thing to have happened. But I saw an interview with Yoko once and she said she sometimes sees it as like a car accident. Like that's how crazy it was. And I thought that was a good good way to, to put it yeah because it's it seems almost so more abstract yeah it's like because car accidents make no sense either right some dumb dumb was driving one way or whatever it's that senseless it's like what we were talking about a few minutes ago with the, the you know act stroke or a terrorist yeah. attack or whatever it is it's so funny how like death is death at the end of it yeah the person's gone but the the way the death occurs can really make you feel so differently like I, my first girlfriend um, uh, passed away about two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was it was it was really hard, and she got cancer, and she had a really long fight with it, and we were I was we we were back together for part of it, and it, we she's she, she remains somebody I'll always love, and and it was it was horrible. But sometimes I think you know she was murdered. She was murdered by cancer. Yeah. Like, but nobody's mad at cancer. Like, <sighs> like, yeah. But like, if she would have been murdered by somebody like Lennon was murdered, everybody, like, because when I see people, when I go back to Long Island and talk to people who knew her, and I go, and I, and her, she always comes up and they're always like, yeah, you know, but she had a long fight. And I'm like, why is nobody outraged? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, she was still murdered. It yeah. was just, it was just, yeah. But and it's, it's, and it's like a, it is like a murder. It's like so mean. It's such a mean, like, it's it's almost like a torture. Because even the sort of story of like, well, you might survive. 
this might work. We don't know that much about it. It's maddening, that part of it. Yeah. And it's just torture. And she was so young. I think to myself, like, someone would have come in to the hospital the day that she was going to die of cancer and murdered her. Yeah. What a different reaction everybody would have had from her dying. Yeah. Yeah. Same result, but just the fact that it wasn't a car accident that killed Lennon and it was just a person. Yeah. It's so much harder to to cope with that I understand why Yoko would reframe it. Yeah, and and she she wasn't diminishing it. She was just saying it's that insane because it is insane it's it's like it's a person who really was a stranger yeah a total stranger like people think you think you know someone but you know it's just like he's a guy from a band and also the older i get i'm like oh he was 40 yeah you know also selfishly i'm like i would have loved some more records or a tour yeah or to get to meet him or something yeah and he's loser some loser has like took that from me you know anyway well, you brought up the the SNL thing and so I wanted to ask you about it briefly like what was it like initially when you became part of SNL it was like my reality was already like as a failed musician right so I wanted so badly to be a famous drummer so when I found myself, literally two years, three years later, talking to Lauren Michaels, and everything just seemed like a crazy dream. Like, what is happening? I thought I had my whole life set out, and then I'm working with these people. They're taking me seriously. They're, they're saying, how do you want to do the costume? How do you want to do these ideas? It was, it was just like the greatest thing in the world and I knew it was gonna change my life for the better, and it did. It was just like, it was as if, like in this room right now, just like everything was just surrounded by like the best ice cream you could imagine. (laughs) You're just like, I can't believe this. I always watched SNL. I never didn't watch it. I always, always watched it. I knew the cast members, you know, what was in, who was in what cast. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of it, being treated like a person who creates things, the greatest. And the parts where it was scary, it was good. It was like the pressure was on. So they didn't just indulge whatever I came up with. I had to work. So it started off as fantastic. I was going to say fantastical, but like it started off as fantastic and then it got greater. It just turned into like heaven. Were were you afraid that it was going to be taken away from you? Um, no, because it was already icing. It was already so nice. It was already so great that I was like, if this ends tomorrow, if, if this ends at the audition, oh my God, I used to be a drummer carrying my drums. And now I'm on the stage doing comedy in front of Lauren and the producers of SNL. I like that the negative thing was that you had to carry drums. Oh, <laughs> I'm dude, sure that's terrible. It's but. the worst. <laughs> because every show, if you go on yeah. tour, you have to take down your drums, put them in cases, hardware, cymbals, carrying them into the van, out of the van, up the stairs, into a club. You play, pack them up again for yeah. a month. You're a professional mover. Wow. It's, it's all you do. Most of your time is carrying metal. Yeah. 
So that's what, you know, to go from that to all of a sudden even being in the room, forget it. If it had ended there, I would have thought, you will not believe how far I got in comedy. I got to have an audition on SNL. Yeah. That's how highly I regarded it. So it seems like a lot of it was just you were you were very appreciative just for whatever it was, and that's what yeah what what, what kept you from going into like a a place of fear. Yeah, and I was like thirty three or something, thirty four. So I had a sense of like uh, that's why I appreciated it. It, it. I don't think it would have been the same if I was twenty four because I would have been like, gimme. Mm-hmm. This felt more like ah. I got a second chance in life. I really got a second chance. Yeah, I mean, that's the reason I wondered if you thought that it would be taken away is just because you, you said you were a failed drummer. So, like, sometimes I, I'll get into the mentality that I'm like, oh, I'm a failed comedian in a way. Not that I've officially failed. I'm still trying. I'm, I still have good things happening. I just got into the Edinburgh Festival. So I'm still a, a possible hit, you know? I'm, I'm not a miss. I'm still a possible hit. But... It's very dangerous that sometimes I'll, I'll get to the point in my head where I'm like, no, 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 it didn't work out for me. But I have to be like, no, that's not set in stone. It just hasn't worked out in the way I want it to yet. Right? Absolutely. And you've also got to like look, appreciate the things that do make you a comedian and part of the community. Something in you sparked something for Paul Giamatti to talk to you, um, myself, you're here in LA, you're doing this. I mean, things are, you don't see, and this Edinburgh Festival is no small feat. That's a huge thing. Yeah. So the things are good. You just don't, you, it's hard to see when you're so close, but you're doing great. But could you have seen that when you were a drummer and you felt like a failed drummer? I knew I had to change. I, I've, I didn't have this. I mean, when I say failed drummer, I'm talking playing to empty houses, oh. empty clubs and seeing bands become famous all around me. Smashing Pumpkins, Liz Fair, Veruca Salt, all these bands were like huge, passed me right by. And I was just getting older. I was like, this is not working. It was very vivid. It was like right in front of me. So how did you make the change? Um, I did a comedy video at a a festival called South by Southwest, where I interviewed bands uh-huh. and I pretended to be different characters. And the momentum of that, doing that tape, is what got me sort of like shifting. I, I followed that river. Yeah. Sorry to sound so hippie-ish. No, I but, like it. But I was going one direction and then when I felt anything that I did with comedy going more smoothly, uh-huh. then I followed that. So I got a, a gig doing this, something else for some other channel, and then all I just kept following that. Great, great. All I want to do is keep working. Yeah, instead of fighting the, the yeah. current. Okay, so here's the, uh, the summary on Marshall McLuhan. He says that society is shaped by the type of media it consumes, not the content delivered. Some media engage our imagination a lot, and others a little. Movies provide visual, sound, etc., but a book requires you to fill in the blanks, working your imagination. The strength of our imagination depends on which media we consume the most. Media are like languages. Maybe that should say is like languages. Media is like languages. 
the content. No, the, media would be plural. Like many medias, because you wouldn't say many medias. I can't tell. That's the tough media. Yeah, I don't know. It's because not, media is like saying records. Records are like languages. Are like languages. So then it is right. Okay. I think. Yeah. Because you can't say medias. Right. What if you said the media is like language? Language. The media would be is, and then media are like languages. I like that the media. The media has a the that can be used before. Yeah. Like up to you. <laughs> like there are these are there are medias, and then there's the media. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Either way. Like am I the media or yeah. am I just media? Like both. Like SNL is definitely the media, right? Let's. No. No. Because SNL isn't a media. It's not a cha- channel of media. But it's part of it's the part media. of the media. Yeah. But it's like part of the media. It's part of the media. But it's not part of media. No. <laughs> like television you, is television is, but not Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the the is like how official the media yeah. or media is. Yeah. Okay, so media are like languages. The content these media deliver is irrelevant to the media's effects. TV can show Sesame Street or violence, but the imagination is still engaged the same amount. Uh, McLuhan uses the examples of machinery. He said machines are used to assist work. The worker can be making anything, and the effect is still the same, aiding work. We cannot blame content for its flaws in society, only the media languages that shape it. Hmm. What does that mean? You cannot blame content for the... Hmm. I cannot blame content. So let's say we blame content for... This is how I take it. If we blame content for um, why someone killed someone else, like they're influenced by a movie, I take it to mean that like you can't blame the movie, but you can blame the way that that person watches movies mm-hmm. i'm i could be wrong i saw yeah I, I think you're right because he's saying you know it's how you use your imagination yeah in the um yeah so yeah going back to the john lennon thing i guess you know he could have consumed lennon's media and interpreted it in a way that would have made him a peaceful uh, loving guy exactly that but, that's that's my guess but instead yeah. you know his imagination shaped yeah. the media and yeah. how its effect on him yeah yeah, I think this is also really advocating books, I think. I think it's, you know, because he says, you know, movies provide visual sound, et cetera, but a book requires you to fill in the blanks using your imagination. And then he says the strength of our imagination depends on which con- media we consume most. So I guess he, is he saying here, like, you want a stronger imagination, consume a media that forces you to use more of it? I don't know if he's got an opinion on it. I think he's just saying that it forces you to fill in the blanks but it doesn't make it necessarily better. Mm. And if he were alive today, I'm sure he would argue also that like there are other media that where you still have to fill in the blanks. In fact, there are movies where you used to fill in the blanks. And I, I remember when I was was a kid, like there were these certain stories that like you feel really close to, like James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. Like I don't know why, but just that one when you're a kid, it. it Oh, it really nice. excites your imagination. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, that's one of my stories. That's like, a, yeah. that's, a, that's a story that's mine. Yeah. And then when that movie came out, James and the Giant Peach, 
even though it was a well done movie, I remember being mad, like inside being like, that's not how it looked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everyone must have experienced that, yeah. except for people who didn't know the book. Right. Because because yeah. now like one person's imagination of, of the book is going to wipe everybody else's imagination of the book. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And then now I can't remember how I originally imagined it. Yeah. It's like, don't, don't force your it's imagination. A comp- it's a composite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have here a, a short paragraph from Marshall McLuhan. Can I ask you to read the paragraph here? With the arrival of technology, man has set outside himself a live model of the central nervous system. It is a development that suggests a desperate suicidal auto-amputation as if the central nervous system could no longer depend on the physical organs to be protective buffers against the slings and arrows of outrageous mechanism. Wow. I'm probably going to have to hear that again because it was too much for me to process all at once. With the arrival of technology, okay, man has set outside himself a live model of the central nervous system that can even apply to the internet right okay nervous system it is a development that suggests a desperate suicidal auto amputation Hmm. as if the central nervous system could no longer depend on the physical organs to be protective buffers against the slings and arrows of outrageous mechanism that's a complicated one yeah it to me, it sounds like that this, let's say it's the internet that. Uh, Which he predicted. <laughs> yes, apparently. Yeah. That suggests that it could live without us. Like it could have, it could be its own living being. That's mm-hmm. how I see it, right? It doesn't depend on physical organs. It's like, really like artificial intelligence. What does he mean? I don't know that it yeah, exists that way. It's, I guess it suggests a desperate suicidal auto-amputation. So, like, maybe for some reason it wants to cut itself off. Uh, I don't know what he means. It exists. Sure, sure it does. But but on the other hand, I mean, we're all still here and the physical organs are still here, but that's what I take from it. I talked to my brother yesterday about technology about like all these apps and i love these apps i have this app where i photograph everything i eat now Mm -hmm. before i eat it so that i'm really conscious of my eating Mm -hmm. and i've been losing weight and it's it's been really good just just being cognizant of like oh i'm about to eat this much Mm -hmm. maybe i won't eat another thing because i already took this photograph Mm -hmm. you know and i was like telling my brother i'm like these apps they just make my life so much better and he's like yeah but they can also destroy you They, they can make you like not think as much they can make you like they could take you because my brother's anti-technology doesn't have a facebook or anything mm-hmm. and like he's barely ever on the computer and uh, if you google him there's no trace of him on the internet he doesn't exist he only exists in the real world mm-hmm. and he's like i'd rather just be present i'd rather i don't need to take an a, a picture or but clearly that's like for every person there's just a different example of what works for them and what doesn't right there's some place in between too by the way you know yeah so he's on a different extreme end of it, but but his point is just the technology can really dumb you down, and it can you're not using activating your brain as much, and you're not. So I don't know if if that has anything to do with this paragraph, but the develop a, a suicidal auto amputation. I don't know if that's the amputation, but 
Yeah, that's the opposite. Where like he's as a person, he's amputating himself from all that from technology. technology. I thought that that meant the technology can someday amputate itself from us. From and like become you know get get rid it of does, us. It will. It or it does kind of run amok anyway. Like sometimes it has its own chaos. Just yeah, we depend on it so much. If if a system goes down for the at the airport. <laughs> yeah. Everything physically stops because yeah. we depended on on it so much. But I don't know. I don't know, I don't know the way around it. Like, yeah. What are we supposed to do? I'm not anti-technology. Me neither. I like it. I do too. I, I I get excited when there's like a new thing. I love technology. Yeah. But um, I'm not sure how he feels about it. You know, it might not be an opinion. Yeah. This to me, it is a development that suggests a. Desperate suicidal auto amputation. I don't know. I guess the word desperate sounds judgmental, but yeah. Can I bring up one other quick thought on what you said before? Yeah. So you you basically you, you mentioned like you had this whole second chance and yeah and um, you entered this whole new reality yeah. where where everything went your way and you were going with the current and everything. Yeah. Do you think you'll still enter yet another reality ah. in your life? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, if if it doesn't turn out that way, I'm fine with that. But like, so I I have to be appreciative that I had this second chance. Mm-hmm. So I I don't want to take it for granted. I don't want to be like, give me another one. Uh, if it happens, I should be so lucky. And if not, I've been very lucky. How much of reality has stayed the same throughout these two realities? My friends, my love of music, um, my choice in pants. Like I keep getting black pants. I did when I was in a band. It was black pants, these kind of jeans. Yeah, you know, black jeans. And then all the way through every picture I see, I'm like, wow! I just did not. I never gave that up. Have you ever purposely tried to break it and see what happens? A, a little bit, and it's a, a disaster. <laughs> It's probably like the smallest disaster. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's it's really clear. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not meant to wear beige cargo pants. Right. It does not fit on my body. It's not does not work. But I just that feels like the most benign use of the word disaster of all time. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a disaster. I'll, I'll show you some pictures. <laughs> um, quotes. Okay. Language. So are we doing one at a time? Uh, yeah, we do one at a time. Language does for intelligence what the wheel does for the feet. It enables them to move with greater speed and ever less involvement. So who is this quote from? These are all from Marshall. Language does for intelligence what the wheel does for feet. Sure, I could see that. Like, yeah. uh, Because you could be intelligent and, and not speak a language. You could be mute. You could be... So I could... I guess that we can still. You speak several languages. Do you feel like the more you pick up language, the clearer an understanding you have of the world? Only in some aspects, because there must be so much that I still don't understand. No matter how many languages I, I think I know. Mm-hmm. But there must be words in some of the languages that you speak that there isn't a word for it in English, right? Yeah, or vice versa, but it. 
the only time it ever turns into practical use is if I'm doing a crossword puzzle or like a trivia game. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when I'm alone in a vehicle looking at a plant and it's, if I know a different word for it, it doesn't really increase my intelligence. It's just, mm-hmm. it's like, it's a, it's a little bit of more inform, a little bit more information as to how people communicate with each other. Because I always feel like when people know a lot of languages, then they're definitely smarter than me. I, I, or I wonder if it's just a yeah. But there's kind of brain. but there are languages you know that yeah. Even though they're not like physical languages that you know more than other people. Yeah. What, even if it's like learning how to operate this, that's a language. Yeah. Um, in my opinion. Wait, in the electric age, we wear all mankind as our skin. I kind of get that right away. Mm-hmm. Because I think the electric age is now. Mm-hmm. And that uh, immediately made me think of Facebook about just like how everybody becomes one. I scroll down Facebook and it's just like these little snippets of lives. Like all mankind and I are now connected within a... One little scroll, I've just seen little snippets of 40 people I know as life from today. I don't know, that's how it hits me. That's a good way to put it. Um, Wow, these are pretty great. These are not simple little sayings. Yeah. That's Alex, he does a great job with those. There is no inevitability, so long as there is willingness to contemplate what is happening. Hmm... There's no inevitable. Nothing is inevitable as long as you're like willing, willing to, to think like about what to realize what's going on. Um, I feel like that's a saying that just kind of goes into itself. It's like, well, yeah. I see it as you can't see things as like destined to be if you can just make sense of it in the moment. You know, I think I don't know. These are funny. These all have, to me, like, they all take a step back a little bit. They're a little bit, they're not like, this is the right way. It's a little bit like, I feel like there's like, um, hands off a little bit. Yeah. Maybe that's why this guy was controversial. I didn't, yeah. read, I didn't read why, but, yeah. but maybe it's like one of those things where he, he says stuff, but you're like, I don't know, I don't know if what he said was good or not, but. In the academic world, they're all like, he might be really, he might be really onto something here. Yeah. He did come up with the internet, you know, but, but I can't make heads or tails of any of Boy, this. Boy, he's a deep guy. I, I don't know. He's, he's, Let's yeah. look at his name. Marshall McLuhan. Well, Marshall, we're talking about you today. So thank you. He would have, he died in 1980. He would have loved the internet. Yeah. It's a shame he didn't get to stick around for that. Yeah. This is, uh, I'll let you have that if you want. Sure. Um, you know what? I'll take it. Yeah, it's got more stuff on him that we didn't yeah. get to, but. Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say the same to you. Are you a Billy Joel fan? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, the, that's the test. That's the litmus test if you, if, for Long Island. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So very Long Island. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, you, if you're, you could say you're, you're Long Islander, but you don't like Billy Joel, it's questionable. But yeah. I've noticed this with everybody from Long Island, like, you know, for, just I guess because he sings about it. And yeah, and also he looks like a Long Islander Yeah, to me. He, he looks like the product of Long yeah, Island. Yeah, he really so. does. Yeah. All right. 
All right, thanks, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, did you enjoy it? You that like was great. The whole, oh, cool. That was awesome. That was a real, it was actually, it was uh, like it made me use my brain. Oh, cool. It's a rare thing because sometimes I'm just like, yeah, it was fun to shoot this thing. <laughs> but, you know, no disrespect to anybody, but that was really great. Yeah, cool. I'm glad I ran into you on the street. We did it. Thank you. Isn't it funny? Things can actually happen. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. It always amazes me when things happen. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the show. Thank you again to Fred Armisen for doing the show. Thank you to Alex Fasella for always having such amazing picks on the philosophers and terrific quotes for us to discuss. As you heard, Fred Armisen, as many other guests, were very impressed with the choice there. Uh, Logan Heftel, the mastermind behind the audio. He's been with us since episode one, and he's got phenomenal music out there online that you can listen to. Go look him up, Logan Heftel. H-E-F-T-E-L. He's such a talented musician. And please write in, say hello, thecomical at yahoo.com. If you have the time, it would mean a lot to me and it would help the show tremendously if you could go on iTunes and leave a five-star rating and a nice review on the page for Modern Day Philosophers. And again, seasons one and two available for sale in the iTunes store. Thanks again to our sponsors, Stand Up Records, standuprecords.com and number one, autotransport.com. That's Number, N-U-M-B-E-R, the digit one, autotransport.com. If you need to ship your car, I highly, highly recommend them. You can't go wrong with them. They will ship that car. They'll ship the hell out of that car. They'll do a damn good job shipping your car. And uh, that's it. That's it for the episode today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out facebook.com slash Danny Lobel, and you'll see me begging for money on a GoFundMe so I could go and perform in Edinburgh and hopefully change my life for the better. All right. Goodbye, everybody. See you next episode. Be well. Bye-bye.